Welcome to the Grow Through International Expansion podcast. I'm Oliver Dowson. Let me be your guide as to how businesses, all kinds of businesses, small and large, can grow, solve their business problems, increase their profits, and grow their value. In these podcasts, we talk to all sorts of interesting people that bring their skills, experience, and insights to all aspects of international expansion. I hope you like these podcasts. If you do, subscribe and keep listening every week. We love comments too. And do share and tell others and check out our resources on our growinternational.org website. Wednesday, the 26th of November, 2008 was, for me, just a normal business day in Mumbai. I'd been visiting the office there for spending a week or so, around three times a year since 1999, and I'd been to other places in India for years before that. And so, in many ways, it just felt like another home. In the evening, I'd been to dinner with a colleague, and around about 9.45, I strolled through the lobby of my regular and favourite hotel, the Oberoi Trident, having just been dropped off by my local business partner after a particularly enjoyable dinner together. Like so many, I love Indian food. Anyway, the hotel is one of those where they greet regular customers by name, and if you travel there regularly, you get to know the staff. So I say goodnight to several of the lobby staff, en route to the lift, and up to my room on the 30th floor. I hadn't actually been there for more than 10 minutes when I heard a really loud bang outside. My first thought was that it was a wedding party underway, often happened around there, and the sound had been that of a celebratory firecracker. It wouldn't have been at all unusual. It's one of the more iconic hotels in Mumbai, and it's a popular venue for functions for well-heeled families. What was unusual, though, was the crescendo of sirens that began just a few minutes later. The Trident Hotel has excellent soundproofing. The 30th floor is a long way above the street. My room faced the sea, and I rarely heard anything normally when I was there. The next few minutes, though, were a blur, and I can no longer recall now what order events happened. But in the course of just the next five minutes or so, I got a call from my colleague saying there was a terror attack in central Mumbai, and I turned on the television to see BBC World News already reporting it. Switching channels to an English-language local news channel, I then learned that the hotel I was in was one of the the places, one of several places in the city that was under attack. So what do I do now? Anything? Well, I thought the obvious thing was to call home and tell my wife and family that I was safe, in case she was watching the news. It was still just late afternoon in London, after all. I got as far as saying there'd been an attack, but she interrupted to say that she had a friend with her and couldn't talk and would ring me back later. Now, however, I could hear what sounded like explosions and gunfire, but the sounds were muffled and sounded quite far away. A bit like having people in an adjacent hotel room watching loud action movies on TV. I couldn't decide what to do next, but it seemed obvious that I shouldn't leave my room until I knew that the situation below me was under control. I looked through the peephole in the door. It gave a reasonably good view of the corridor, both ways. Nothing going on there. Good. My colleague rang back. Thank goodness for mobile phones. Thank goodness I had a local Indian SIM card. But thank goodness a million times more for Kartik, my joint venture business partner, my colleague, my friend, who throughout the entire episode for the hours after this kept me informed all the time at half hourly intervals of anything going on or rumoured to be going on. 
Thinking back now, I believe his calls actually stopped me going insane. I didn't actually experience anything frightening. I was just a hostage in my room, cocooned in five-star luxury. But equally, I miscredited his wife, Deepa, who I discovered afterwards spent the whole time calming the nerves of a hundred colleagues in the Mumbai office and many more in our other offices around the world and keeping everybody informed of the latest situation. Yes, I was wrapped up in a terrorist incident. I haven't written or spoken about it fully for those 13 years since that happened, perhaps because I wasn't really feeling that I'd been held hostage. But let me tell you the story. The news from Kartik at the start was that nobody knew what was happening, but it was scary enough there were multiple gunmen attacking multiple locations. The television was on, so I could learn that it wasn't just my hotel, but the iconic Taj Mahal Hotel too, and the Oberoi next door. Did they mean where I was staying? I didn't know. The hotel I was in had changed names several times over the years. First the Oberoi Towers, then it became the Hilton, now it was the Trident. But there was an Oberoi as well right next door. And most hotel uh, people and most taxi drivers called the hotel I was in the Oberoi. Anyway, it was academic as both hotels had the same owners and they're connected. But over the following 36 hours, it did cause some confusion. As different news media media reported that police were searching for gunmen entering the corridors and starting fires at the Oberoi. Did they mean the one I was in or the one next door? Then, overnight, and still throughout the whole of the next day, the most worrying news was that the authorities really didn't know how many terrorists there were still at large. I had no choice but to stay in my room. I certainly didn't want to leave and risk being confronted by someone with a gun. Nowadays, one can probably search on Google for what do I do if I'm trapped in a hotel room by terrorists? We could probably have done it then in 2008, but it didn't occur to me. What I did think was that if I was going to have to stay there, I probably ought to make my occupancy as discreet as possible. That hotel has very effective blackout-type roller blinds at its windows, so I put mine down so that from outside, any lights in the room wouldn't show and the room wouldn't look occupied. Since I was on such a high floor and faced the sea, I doubted the room could be seen from the street below anyway, but perhaps the terrorists had a boat out there. Best to take all precautions. I turned off the room lights and put the desk lamp on the floor in a corner, which gave me just enough dim light to stop me tripping over anything. Another feature of that hotel is that there's a big window between the bathroom and the bedroom. In normal times, that's good, I suppose, for voyeurs and couples who are happy seeing each other. But now it meant that enough light reached the bathroom too from just that desk lamp on the floor by the bed. I turned off the sound on the TV. The pictures and the subtitles told me all I needed to know. I stuck a post-it note over the peephole in the door, just in case it could be used to see into the room. Already light seeped into into the corridor. James Bond it wasn't, but it's all I could think of at the time. Well, by now it was 11pm, and I'd been in the room for just over an hour. It had all gone quiet, and now the TV was showing scary scenes of the other hotel, the Taj Mahal. Perhaps it was all over in the hotel where I was. From what I could see, the authorities obviously didn't think so. Now, if I was going to be here sometime, what else did I need to think about? I still had electricity, water, TV, internet even. But the hotel was still under attack, so perhaps that wouldn't last for long. I filled the electric kettle and all the glasses in the cupboard above the minibar with water. I plugged in the Blackberry to charge. Why hadn't I done that straight away when I first got back to the room? 
My wife rang back. Now she knew the situation and had turned on the TV. She was in a state of shock, but she quickly calmed down when I reassured her that I was fine and nothing was happening near me, at least not that I was aware of. She spent hours switching between British and Spanish television, which showed some news that wasn't shown on BBC, CNN or Indian News 24. She told me a Spanish government minister had been in my hotel dining in the restaurant at the time when the gunman had entered. Apparently some people had been shot there, but the minister herself was safe. She'd hidden under a table, and now she was out of the hotel. But once again there was confusion. Had the minister been in the Oberoi or the Trident? Well, if it was the Trident, and in fact, yes, it was later confirmed that yes it was, then the restaurant was on the lower ground floor, so even further away from me ensconced in my room high up on the 30th. Not that that really made me feel any more relaxed. It was my bedtime, but um, sleeping was about the last thing on my mind. I watched the TV, transfixed. They were showing the same images, saying the same thing over and over again. Sometimes they showed my hotel. More often they showed the Taj, where it was clear that much more was going on, but perhaps only because the cameras could get nearer, or because the hotel looks more iconic. Now I learnt, though, that there were attacks elsewhere, such as a Jewish community centre and a famous um, restaurant where I often went. I didn't even know at that time there was a Jewish community in Mumbai, never mind a centre. I also learnt there were at least six, if not eight or ten or twelve attackers, nobody knew, and that they'd landed by boat on the foreshore just a hundred or metres or so up from my hotel. I started to get a few emails now, from colleagues and family in other countries. First, the ones that were still awake, so UK, USA and Brazil. The first few were from people I knew who knew who I was in India, but had no idea I was in the thick of it. They were sensing polite inquiries to ask if I knew anything more than they could see on the TV news. Then, after I'd replied to say that, in fact, I was holed up in one of the hotels being attacked, a mix of shock and awe, entreaties to stay safe, words of reassurance that everything would turn out okay, and polite inquiries as to whether I had enough to eat. Always inquiries as to whether I had enough to eat. I actually quickly lost consciousness of time, I think. Perhaps I fell asleep. I suddenly became aware that the TV had gone off. Looking at my watch, I saw that it was after four in the morning. I went to the laptop to see what new emails I had and saw that the internet had been turned off too. But it looked like I still had mobile data on the BlackBerry. I sent a message to my colleague to check. Despite the early hour, his reply was near instant, and he phoned as well. I crossed my fingers, hoping that this connection would stay up until I could get out of the hotel. Twenty minutes later, at half past four, another message to say that the TV networks had been ordered to stop showing live pictures of the hotels as a military operation was planned. OK, so if I'd had TV, I wouldn't have seen anything anyway. I just hoped that any operation they had would be successful, and I'd be out of it soon. I could hear distant shouting and the occasional small explosion, perhaps some gunfire, but it all sounded like it came from some distance. Nothing was happening on the 30th floor as far as I could tell. So, nothing to do but lie on the bed in my room and check the Blackberry from time to time. Dawn broke, I suppose that was about 6, 6.30, alerting me to the fact that I hadn't properly closed the blinds and I'd left a gap at the bottom. No matter now. I raised the blind a little more to allow me to look out. Nice view of the bay, always. 
impossible to see the street. The hotel has very deeply inset windows. So when you're on a high floor, there's no way of seeing what's going on below. I could hear what sounded like military manoeuvres, though. I can then see O shouting orders at troops who were marching back and forth. I could hear the chomp, chomp, chomp of boots on the ground. That's probably so. That's probably exactly what was going on. My colleague um, sent me a message to say he'd got as close as he could to the hotel and he was standing outside in a crowd at the barricades, but he couldn't see what was going on either. All I knew was that something was and that it definitely wasn't safe to leave the room. At least two of the many emails I received overnight from friends in far distant countries had asked if I had anything to eat and reminded me that it was breakfast time. I was peckish, not hungry exactly, but I wanted something other than water. Time to raid the mini bar. The Trident doesn't have one of the best stocked variety, but at least there was something. Two small bars of chocolate, a bag of crisps, a small tin of nuts, and a mini pack with two dry biscuits in it. And there was an electric kettle and two sachets of coffee. I decided that now was as good a time as any. If I ran out of sachets before I was rescued, I could always try drinking tea again. I disliked it for many years. I made my coffee and dipped the biscuits the way my father used to dip his in his tea. Memories. New messages from Kartik said that police or troops were now hunting down at least one gunman who were prowling the corridors of the hotel. I had another think about my security. If someone burst into the room, I had nowhere to go. Even if I could find a way of smashing the window, I was on the 30th floor. My eyes were drawn to an armchair in the corner of the room, big, quite heavy. Using handspan measurements, I could work out that it was slightly narrower than the passage leading up from the bedroom, past the bathroom, to the door to the corridor. So, with a lot of heaving, puffing, panting, and a bit of other furniture removal along the way, I managed to push it across the room and along the passage. It was a very neat fit. Now I figured it was impossible for anyone to burst through the door, though obviously it didn't stop someone firing a gun at it. The only potential life-saving benefit would be if a terrorist found it difficult to get in and, being in a hurry, moved on to an easier target in an adjacent room. Uh, But then I have no idea how terrorists think. Another new message from my colleague. He'd now alerted the British consulate in Mumbai to the fact that I was in the hotel and given them my mobile number. He said they'd call me. And then, once the event was over, they'd arrange flights out and any other assistance. I'd never actually contacted a British consulate in any city in the world I'd been right up to that point in time. So, that was a novelty. I didn't know what they could really do, but it sounded the right thing in the circumstances. But my first call wasn't from the consulate. I did get some outside calls. The first ones were from the BBC and CNN. But since I wasn't panicking... My room wasn't on fire, and I couldn't see anything going on. They lost interest almost immediately. But at least it was good to talk to them. When the consulate did call eventually, many, many hours later, their conversation with them was memorable. Are you still in your room in the hotel? Yes. Ah, that's all right then. Hope you're keeping your spirits up. And with that, hanging up. But back in the early morning, the the next message I got was that the Taj Mahal Hotel was on fire. I hadn't considered a fire. Thinking back to what I remembered seeing in movies and on the TV action programs, I decided to add to my defences by soaking some towels, lots in that room, and putting them at the foot of the door to stop any ingress of smoke if there was a fire outside. But that required first moving the chair, uh, locating the wet towels, and then pushing the chair back to the door again. Another useful bit of exercise, and occupied me for at least 15 minutes. So, by now it was 9.15. 
and my first email of the day from Britain. In fact, 3.45 in the morning back in Leeds, so someone was watching TV in the middle of the night. The BBC says the gunmen are still holding hostages at the Oberoi Trident Hotel, he told me. Hmm, so, okay, stay quiet. I won't be going anywhere soon. At least I wasn't being held at gunpoint. Fifteen minutes later, I heard a blast from below, and then louder sounds of fighting, louder than I'd been hearing for hours. I messaged Karsik to find out what he knew. The reply was that he'd been told that the army were about to start scanning rooms for guests and to stay still. Oh, I sounded positive. Maybe I'd be out of there soon. By 11.30 in the morning, there were regular sounds of gunfire. My colleague didn't know where they were coming from. Nevertheless, he said, the army was going from room to room. They didn't reach my room that morning, though. By one o'clock, it actually was clear that they weren't in my hotel. They were actually in the one next door, the actual Oberoi. Over the following two hours, I got frequent updates on what seemed to be a gun battle on lower floors of that next-door hotel, and also a fire there. I hoped it didn't spread. To give myself something to do, I made the towels at the door a bit wetter. Time for lunch. Hmm, <laughs> the tin of nuts. And a beer. I didn't want to drink, but thought a beer might cheer me up a bit. Surprisingly, I hadn't thought about drinking any of the alcohol in the fridge up to then. I needed something to occupy my mind. Yesterday's Times of India newspaper wasn't going to entertain me, and I didn't have a book to read. But I did have a laptop with power, and even if there was no internet, I could still do some work, something useful. I remembered receiving an email from one of our people in Brazil the day before, saying that they thought there was a bug in the software, bugs I could fix. I had a local copy of all the code on my laptop. I wouldn't be able to test anything until I got the internet back, but fixing the code would occupy and entertain me. I set to work. Not that I could concentrate for very long at a time. Every time the BlackBerry pinged with a new message, my attention strayed. Mostly, they were just status checks and greetings from colleagues. It was very touching to receive them. I realised the global reach of our operation like never before. Getting messages from London, Frankfurt, Prague, Detroit, Chicago, Ottawa, Sao Paulo, Perth, Shanghai. I was uplifted thinking of all those people thinking of me. I also felt a bit of a fraud, frankly. They all seemed to think I was manacled to a wall in some dingy basement with a gun to my head, whilst in fact I was quite comfortable in a nice room in a five-star hotel, just a, a bit worried and unable to leave my room. An hour or so later, one of the messages from a colleague in London told me that the BBC were reporting fires in my hotel on the 4th and the 19th floor. I climbed on the chair, blocking the door, moved the post-it note and looked through the peephole into the corridor. Nothing unusual. No smoke. I poured a cup of water over the towel at the bottom of the door, just in case. Going back to the desk, a new message from Carter. It turns out that the fires were actually next door, at the Oberoi. Phew, but still a bit closer than I would like. A reporter from CNN India calls. He got my number from a policeman on the barricade, who was in turn was given it by Kartik a few hours previously. Like the others, he loses interest quickly when he finds out that I'm not actually being confronted by a terrorist, but promised me that he is telling the troops to come and get me out. I find out a few minutes later that it's actually a colleague's father who has called someone he knows in the army, probably a general. I think he's very well connected. Still, I'm not getting my hopes up. By now it's 3.30 in the afternoon. Encouraged by Karsik, who's been told that the situation is fully under control, I try calling the hotel front desk and operator. No answer to either number. Now I get a call from the British High Commission. As I said, not with any news, but just to confirm I'm there. They've had my number since the crack of dawn, but it's only taken them about seven hours to call. I suppose they've been busy. I wonder how many other Britons there are in the hotels. 
time drifts by. It gets dark. At nine o'clock, I get an email from a fellow director from Leeds. He's been watching the Foreign Secretary, at the time David Miliband, talking on the news. I'm told he said that the troops are going room by room, getting people out, and that the Foreign Office is going to cover the expense of getting all British nationals back to the UK. Remember that. Nothing more happens for the next three hours, but at midnight I get a similar confirmation that the rescue operation, so-called, is now underway from another fellow director, this time in Brazil, who's been watching CNN, but also from Kartik and his wife, who are literally on the front line, so probably more credible than the news media. Not time to celebrate yet, though, but definitely time to open a bar of chocolate. I hope they come soon, though. There's only one left. And the bars are very small. Somehow, I think I'm not going to be got out in the middle of the night. So I save the coffee sachet for the morning. I make a cup of tea instead. Mmm, no. I really still don't like tea. I wonder why I went off tea. I used to drink it all the time until I was about 17 and left home for university. Hmm. I drift off into a sort of sleep. But come to when the blackberry pings again. It's 3am. The email tells me that Kartik is still outside of the barricade, but going to his home now. Such dedication waiting outside. An hour later, it turns out he didn't make it. It tells me he's now at the Air India building, which is right next door to the Trident Hotel, and that with most people gone for the night, he's been able to chinwag the army people and some Trident staff hanging out there. He tells me that they've assured him that my room in the Trident is very safe to be, and that all the terrorist activities in the Oberoi next door, and I thought everything was under control. The evacuation for the Trident was not happening yet, as they were focusing on the Oberoi. But they'd start another round of rescue as soon as they could. He says that they told him, your guest is in a very safe place right now. Good. I can go back to sleep, or at least try, at least until 3 or 5 a.m. when I'm woken by a phone call from the BBC. This time, a BBC reporter from the UK. The one who called me before was local. But, like his Indian colleague, this one loses interest when he learns that I'm safe, sound, and just bored. Soon after 7, Kartik calls and tells me that the rescue operation has started. He's seen the troops move into the hotel, so I guess it's all over now, bar the shouting. I move the chair away from the door. Retrieve the soaking towel, have a shower, put on clean clothes, pack my case, make my last coffee and munch the last bar of chocolate and wait and wait. It took until 10.30 in the morning before I got the knock on the door. Those three hours were the longest of the whole 37 hours that I was in the room. When they came, it wasn't the army at all, but what looked like hotel staff. Well, maybe they were military dressed in hotel uniforms. Anyway, one picked up my case and two others grabbed me, one by each arm, and forcibly marched me to the lift, down to the ground floor. My my bodyguards pulled me out and frog-marched me to the entrance. I tried turning my head to look behind, but found my view blocked by two men walking behind me, holding a big sheet of plywood. I suppose that I wasn't supposed to see whatever was there. The plate glass front doors of the hotel, right in front of me, I could see. They just lay shattered on the ground, broken glass everywhere. Outside, down the ramp, across the road, to the undercroft of the Air India building, still being pulled along by my two bodyguards. The Air India undercroft is basically a car park and a bus park at ground level, opened both ends with a tower block built on top of it. In it were a row of desks on one side and a row of dark blue military buses with blacked out windows on the other. Someone asked me my nationality and took me to the British desk. Turned out that there was a desk for each 
country's consulate. A young man there asked my name and whether I still had my passport. He seemed rather disappointed that I had. It seems he didn't know very much. He told me that I would find out everything if I went to the British Council building at five o'clock in the afternoon, where they'd be arranging flights out. He told me to get in one of the buses that would take me to another hotel. I refused, and that worried him. I refused because I told him that I had Indian colleagues there waiting for me at the barricade and I wanted to go with them. He wasn't programmed to deal with that. But after showing him and a few other people an email on my Blackberry saying that they were there waiting for me and laboriously writing down Kartik's name, number, address, he called over a couple of plainclothes police who led me, again grabbed by each arm, out of the undercroft towards the barricade and through the waiting milling crowd. First, however, into the arms of a waiting CNN cameraman and reporter, asking questions and filming me. Fame at last. My picture not only made CNN, but the BBC, the New York Times, and perhaps other media too, probably because I was the first foreigner voluntarily heading back into India and going through the crowd, and specifically into the arms of my colleague and friend, He drove me to their home where I was welcomed by the whole of what I feel as my Indian family. A fine whiskey and a better lunch. Heavens, I was so hungry. I hadn't realised until then. In fact, after I got out as well, it seemed that the first question everybody I met asked was what I'd had to eat while trapped in the room. Now I could be told all the news that I'd missed and that they decided it was better kept from me while I was in the hotel. Fire engulfing the Taj Hotel, lots of explosions. At least 119 people killed, over 300 injured in eight separate incidents around Mumbai. Worst of all, in the circumstances, two of my colleagues' cousins were among those killed. They'd actually been checking in to my hotel when the gunman arrived. The terrorists just shot everybody in the lobby. If I'd arrived back from dinner a quarter of an hour later, I'd been among them. After lunch, first to the office, where a hundred colleagues seemed thrilled to see me, and then to the British Council. Well, it's library, where there are about a dozen other former hostages, if we're allowed to call ourselves hostages, milling around, and a few young functionaries to chat to. Once again, the fact that I still had my own passport and they didn't need to issue me with an emergency travel document seemed to come as a disappointment. One of them told me that she was tasked with organising flights back to London. I'd already decided that I'd better go straight home. My ticket was for the following day via Vienna, and theoretically it wasn't changeable. I suggested that she call the airline for me and try to negotiate with them to get me on that night's flight. Uh, But no, she couldn't or wouldn't do that as we don't work with Austrian airlines. Wouldn't even make a call. She wouldn't even look up the phone number so that I could call them myself. Well, I could do that. No, the flight was full. My ticket couldn't be changed. She could offer me a ticket on another airline, but first I would have to sign a document in duplicate agreeing to pay back the cost of the ticket to the Foreign Office once I got back to London. So much for David Miliband's TV interview saying that they would cover the costs. He got it wrong, I was told. Well... It wasn't as if I'd been suffering any real hardship. I just hoped they would be nicer to the Britons who'd escaped from the fires at the Taj. I doubted it, though. Then they weren't going to give me a ticket there and then. I would have to go to the airport at 10pm and find a special desk that they were going to set up there and collect a ticket from them. And, since I hadn't accepted their offer of going to another hotel earlier in the day, I would have to make my own way to the airport at my own expense. Well, I didn't mind that. The terminal when I got there was heaving. It's always busy late evening in Mumbai. Most long-haul flights lead around midnight. But tonight it seemed even busier than usual. Possibly because the security to get into the terminal in the first place was much higher than I'd ever seen before. Given the circumstances, 
perhaps not surprising. Once inside, finding this British desk proved a challenge. Assumed that it would be by the British Airways check-in desks, but no, it was in another corner of the terminal. Just a trestle table with a big Union Jack flag hanging in front of it, manned by an incongruously cheery young man. I requested my ticket. He checked my name off my list, got me to sign yet another form, and handed me a piece of paper. I looked at it. It wasn't a ticket. It was a standby request for a Jet Airways flight. This isn't a confirmed ticket, I told him. No, all the flights are full, he replied. We're just hoping they'll have book passengers who won't turn up, so there'll be free seats. I assumed you'd use British Airways, I said. No, they really are full tonight, he replied. <laughs> I knew by then that Spain... Germany and France had all sent specially chartered planes to pick up their nationals, presumably at no extra charge. Britons were just given standby vouchers for an Indian airline, a perfectly good one, I admit, that if they got lucky and got onto a plane, they'd then have to pay for the ticket when they got back to Blighty. <laughs> well, jet flight wasn't until 2am I had hours. The Austrian flight to Vienna, on the other hand, was at 23.30, quite soon. I decided to try my luck there. I went to the check-in desk and showed my reservation for the following day. The clerk was charming and polite, but said no. The flight was full. But then suddenly I got lucky. There'd been another woman standing behind her who came forward. Didn't I see you on television today? She asked. My first and only experience that celebrity status helps. She introduced herself as a supervisor, took over the computer in front of the check-in clerk, tapped away furiously for a few minutes, and then, smiling sweetly, handed me boarding passes. You'd better hurry. The flight's on time, she said. I did hurry, but first stopped by the Union Jack desk to give the man back his standby slip. He seemed somewhat crestfallen when I told him I'd negotiated my own passage home. But after that, it all went smoothly. Slight hassle boarding the plane. While I was finding my seat, I got another phone call. A reporter from a Brazilian newspaper in the city where we have an office called me. me. I found myself responding to an interview in my really bad attempt at Portuguese, trying to stow my bag at the same time. Never mind. And arriving in London, I was met by special branch officers. And they just seemed disappointed that I hadn't actually seen any terrorists and I hadn't seen anyone suspicious on my flights home from Mumbai. And that was that. It was certainly an experience, but I was never really a true hostage. Just trapped in my room in a luxury hotel for nearly 40 hours, feeling threatened by potential terrorist uh, incursion at any moment. I had electricity and water, though. I had non-stop contact via the BlackBerry with family, friends and colleagues all around the world. And most importantly, I'd learnt what amazing friends I had in my Mumbai colleagues. A true family. While writing this and preparing this podcast, I realised that I never gave them any proper appreciation or credit in all of these years after that. Thirteen years on, it's one of many travel experiences that I've had, but unsurprisingly one that sticks most clearly in the mind. But even though it's a story I've never fully told before. But now I'm telling my stories. You'll be able to read about some of my other less than likely business travel experiences in my forthcoming book, There's No Business Like International Business. It's going to be published around the end of January. Click on the link in the website to register your interest and to get a copy at a special price as soon as it's out. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation and this podcast. I really welcome your comments and also suggestions for future conversations. We post new content every week, so please do click on the subscribe button and follow this, the Growth Through International Expansion podcast. 
You can also find the transcript, other articles and detailed resources relating to this episode on our website, growinternational.org. There, you can also join as a member for future updates and find all our other articles, videos and podcasts and benefit from other features, including free consultations and independent online advice. Again, that's www.growinternational.org. Until next time, this is Oliver Dowson wishing you success and reminding you that international expansion may be easier than you may think. Mm-hmm.